Wrestling fans, this episode is brought to you by the Frog Ninja Wrestling Camp, taking place Tuesday, June 21st through Thursday, June 23rd at Oxford High School in Oxford, PA. The clinicians, stellar list of clinicians, will be Brian Pearsall, who was a four-year starter at Penn State, is now the associate head coach at the University of Pennsylvania. They're also having Mark Hall, maybe you've heard of him, NCAA champ, Six-time Minnesota high school state champ. He's going to be one of the clinicians. Then you also have Dave McFadden rounding out the group. So an awesome camp taking place this June 21st through June 23rd in Oxford, PA. Go to frogninjawrestlingclub.com to sign up. That's frogninjawrestlingclub.com to sign up. You could wrestle well and lose. Like, that's a concept that people don't get in this sport you can wrestle well and lose and guess what you can wrestle poorly and win we can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change wrestling gave us that ability i would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection resilience toughness some guys have it some guys don't adversity 100% how to pick myself up and be a man after I failed and everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling for me wrestling saved my life because it allowed me to focus and channel my energy we're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled natural talent helps but it's it's 5% 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast presented by Spartan Combat. Go to SpartanCombat.com to place your merch orders for the Freestyle and Greco season. This episode is with Columbia head coach Zach Tonelli. Coach Tonelli's been there since 2016. Before that, he coached at Purdue and Hofstra. He was an All-American at Wisconsin. And way back in his heyday, he was a New Jersey legend wrestling for Ernie Monaco at the edge. We talk about Ernie a lot in this podcast. I really enjoyed this one. I hope you do as well. Fan of the week goes to Robert Antiaco from Brooklyn, New York, coming through on a merch purchase. Thank you so much, Robert. We appreciate it. If anyone listening wants to support the podcast, you can go to store.wrestlingchangemylife.com to purchase Wrestling Change My Life merch. And that's it, folks. Let's give it up for Zach Tanelli. Coach Tanelli, welcome to the Wrestling Change My Life podcast. Thanks for having me on, brother. Yeah, it's awesome to have you. Like we were saying off air, made an acquaintance at the Nationals, and we've been trying to get this scheduled, and, and here we are. I think first things first, man, just looking at your Twitter, I noticed you guys had graduation over the weekend for your senior class. How did that go, and how did the kind of the season wrap up for you guys? It was great. I mean, we had our, uh, we had our banquet this weekend, and then we had a couple guys go compete at last chance qualifier. Um, following that, which is always good to have a couple guys that, that no matter what the situation, you know, want to, want to chase some extra matches. I think that's good. 
um, fabric within the, the culture of our program. But, uh, but it's exciting. You know, we, we changed things up with our banquet this year. We usually do it a little closer to uh, after the season, you know, a couple of weeks after the season to, to kind of put a bow on things and, and move toward freestyle. But, uh, but this year we pushed it back a little bit and, and went to a new venue. And, and it was uh, overall, I think, a pretty great experience. The feedback was good. So, you know, always, always good to look back on what I thought was a really good season. Yeah. And you look at the freestyle scene for your guys is so unique because of what you have going on with the New York RTC. So how, how does that work when the season's done? Are you guys still training at Columbia or are they going over to Hoboken across the river? Yeah. So we have, we have two locations for RTC and kind of the way it's structured is, uh, so during the academic year, say from, you know, Labor Day to this past weekend when guys finished finals, uh, our RTC guys are coming through, say three times a week, coming up to the room. Uh, and then once we leave, so basically our guys are, are moving this weekend, then we operate at a, at a Hoboken exclusively. Um, and then we'll do that through, you know, July is kind of when we cut them. Some guys stick around in August, but, uh, but ultimately that's, that's kind of the, the structure that we've got in place. That's cool because your guys get to work out with and be coached by yourself, but then also get a little mix up of, of Kendall and Valentine. Who are some of the RTC athletes that are with the NYRTC right now? So with New York city, we got, um, Jordan Oliver, we got Mitch Feinsilver, uh, Nestor DeFour has, has retired and now come back. So he's making a, making his, uh, his reentry on the scene. Uh, Shelton Mack, one of our, our coaches as well on staff. So he trains with us. Uh, Frank Chimizo is probably the big headliner. So he's in town now getting ready. Uh, yeah, I think that's, I don't think I missed anybody. So your guys are rolling with JOs and the Chimizos of the world. I don't know how regularly, but at least, at least a, a fair amount in the off season. Absolutely. I think more than anything, it's like, it's just kind of the exposure um, to guys at that level, the way they think. I think when you, when you look at Jordan, specifically his he's got an amazing brain for wrestling and what he brings to the table is um it's almost more than like psychological mental than it is than it is physical um but you throw that in and then we, we kind of always have international guys rolling in i think in, in, in a large or to a large extent the uh the international senior level guys are almost our easiest recruits more than the high school kids the college kids um <laughs> you know the, even domestic uh, it's an international city, us being in New York. And, and, uh, you know, so right now we, I mean, Ken Chadze had been in town for uh man for a couple of months training. Um, we've had a great relationship with the Georgian national team. So, uh, Vladimir Kinshkashvili and, uh, Gino and, uh, Petrashvili and Montadze. Every, I mean, all these guys have, have been here. We've done some exchanges in the past. So I think as far as what, you know, experience we can provide for our, our student athletes. It's, it's pretty remarkable. It's a pretty cool thing. At least what I'll say is it's a lot different than, than the experience I had, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you were at Wisconsin for five years or six years, five, five years. I mean, I love that you brought that up because, you know, you came up through Jersey and I definitely want to talk about Ernie Monaco and the edge and, uh, you know, the Lombardi brothers, you know, the whole crew, but you know, you get out to Wisconsin, how impactful was Donnie Pritzloff for you to get out there? Well, I, 
I'll say this. I wouldn't have been out there if it weren't for Donnie Pritzlaff. So, um, you know, it's kind of an intertwined story when, when you bring up a couple of those things. And, and like you said, it sounds like you want to get to him, but, uh, let's get to him right now. If you Donnie, want, yeah. <laughs> Donnie actually came, uh, out of, out of the club that Ernie Monaco ran. So out of the edge, which is, uh, the oldest club in, in the nation. And, and, you know, historically, when you look back on it, even, even to this day, uh, you know, one of the most successful clubs, um, mm-hmm. in the nation. So the guys that had gone on and, um, had the, you know, the NCAA success and, and, you know, some international success as well, but you're looking at the likes of, you know, Donnie Pritzlaff and, and, uh, Glenn Pritzlaff, Steve Mako, Zach Esposito, Joe Dubuque, Matt Valenti. Those are just the, you know, some of the national champions, Darian Caldwell, um, and, uh, Molinero you know, was, uh, you know, he rolled through the club, but then you look at the all Americans that, that have come out with, you know, myself and Mike Gray and oh, I mean the lineage, it's, it's, it's really, it's pretty wild when you think about it, Corey Cooperman and Kurt Backus. Um, there's just even a, probably like every state has those guys that were like phenoms in high school, but never went on. I'm sure there's a ton of guys who are like New Jersey legends that never even materialized in D one that went there as well. Sure. Sure. I think that's like kind of the craziest thing. Most of the phenoms that came out of there did, did materialize in college, you know, when, when you really yeah. break it down. And I think, I think that's what made him really, really unique. And, and by him, I mean, Ernie Monaco is, is his ability. It was so much more, there was, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of technique. There's a lot of breakdown. There's some really advanced stuff going on in that room, but I always, <laughs> I always say it's like, it's more what we learn. Like he taught us how to learn more than what to learn. And it's funny when, uh, like this past weekend, I'm at last chance qualifier and, uh, Northeast regions are going on at the same time in Atlantic city and, and Glenn Chris last there. Right. So Glenn's mm-hmm. a, Glenn's a national champ, wrestled the Penn state. And, uh, obviously a different generation from me, but the, the, what's crazy is we speak the same language always, always like all these, these edge guys. Right. And there's, I think kind of to what you're saying, there's a lot of, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I actually was speaking with Ernie this weekend cause he was there coaching um, and Glenn was there helping him out, but it's like, there's a, there's like a difference between edge guys and guys that went to the edge. Um, and I think it's a pretty unique, unique spin, but I'll, I'll say as far as like edge guys there, I mean, they did materialize in college. Um, right. but again, it's because of the, it's because we're all wired the same. He hardwired us, um, psychologically and, and stylistically we're different. You know, Dave Esposito, you know, as a two-time all American and national finalist, he's, he, he couldn't be a cooler cat. But but he processes and competes in a way that that all of us had that that same kind of fire. Um, and I'm probably giving myself a little bit too much credit, throwing myself in there. So <laughs> a, larger, a large edge guy community, I'll say. Um, so again, long you know, coming back to the original question, uh, I wouldn't have gone there. You know, I think for me specifically, I was I was compared to Donnie uh, in high school and and. And you know, been around him a little bit and a couple limited interactions, but uh I think it was more, you know, my coach telling me and Ernie telling me that, hey, you're you're like this guy. We I have no idea. I have no idea what this guy is even like. I, but but if he's saying it and he hasn't steered me wrong yet, well, then I'm probably like him. And uh so to me it was like it was almost really easy. Mm-hmm. I, I was I was gonna go to Wisconsin with you know, that's where Donnie went and he won two national titles and 
um, that's where I was going to go and, and win three national titles. And, you know, that didn't, that didn't materialize the way I had planned, but, um, yeah, but it was, it was again, to circle back, it would have, I would have never been there ever. So you mentioned Ernie taught you how to learn, not just what to learn. Do you remember anything specific as to how he did that or what he did to convey that? Ernie is a, is a storyteller. Um, and he's a guy that he could relate to any, anybody. Right. And he was so good through telling stories of making you love, like creating these visuals in your mind that like, you'd always reference back. I mean, I've been coach, I've been out of college coaching for 13 years or I have no idea how long it is, but it's like, I still use this, this, the same stories, the same like versions of these stories that, that I heard from him. Um, because it gives that visualization attachment that, uh, that guys can come back to and latch into. And, and he's just a, his demeanor, everything about him is like, really, it's pretty impactful, right? He's emotional. Mm -hmm. He's like one of the most emotional guys, um, where I'll say maybe not emotional, but the most in touch with his emotions, um, ability to be vulnerable and to like, it's, it's the stuff that really matters. When I think about men, when I think about the, the manliest men, I don't think about muscles and fighting. And, you know, I think about men that are uh, willing to, to show themselves who they really are. And, and, you know, he's a great father. He's a great husband. He's committed. Like, like he, he walked that, that the whole picture, the whole, the whole gamut he, he ran. And, uh, and because of that, it was like, like, attached with the wrestling the technical side of it mm -hmm. he was ahead of his, of his time for video and the and the um more specifically like the international guys that we were watching all the time you know i grew up watching fatsayev and sativ and um it, it certainly seemed like i had no uh like like excuse me like no one else was doing that but you lump all those things together and and then again i think the biggest thing is like he's a storyteller yeah it's, it's just, like it made a difference I didn't mean to, I thought you were done there. Sorry, but I was just get so excited talking about this because I heard you say that like the way he talked about wrestling was unique, even like the way he communicated, like what wrestling was and how, like, and how impactful it is, is different than any way else you've heard it. hundred percent. Yeah. And I think for me, it was almost easy. I started wrestling really late. I started wrestling in sixth grade. So I didn't know any better, you know, I just like, I was kind of handed like, through luck, through circumstance a little bit, but like, I just kind of was in, in uh, like an empty book. And like, he just, he was able to fill the pages himself. I was an empty book and he's just like writing, this is what you're supposed to think. So I was like, Oh, okay. This is what I think. And I'm like, you know, I'm crazy. So I believed it, you know? And that's really when I look at my child, like all I needed, I look at my childhood and it's like, all I needed was someone to really guide me. Um, and kind of keep me, keep me honest, keep me accountable. So he kept me on the rails. His wife kept me on the rails. And, uh, and it was a, it was a recipe for like, like destruction. We did like, we, we destroyed, uh, people with, with that recipe. And that was a, that was a pretty, pretty cool thing. And then you build momentum and you're like, well, why actually I should never doubt this guy, whatever he says, I'll do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. It's like some of the core things I've read about trust. It's like, do you have to believe that the guy has competency 
and he has to be consistent and you have to believe he cares. Right. So like the competency, you just saw that because you saw all these other legends in there and then the consistency, it sounds like he was always there for you. And then the care, you know, I'm getting that from you as well. Um, when you think about like some of the more important things of like mental development, such as like the conversation we have with ourselves and visualization, did he ever talk about that kind of stuff in terms of like what you should be telling yourself and what you should be expecting of yourself? Yeah, always, always. I think like the biggest you're, you're talking about, and even before I brushed over, but like specific things he used to talk about. And it ties into what you're saying now is like, everything has to be based around your performance. And I think in this country, in this sport, we, we focus so much on results and don't get me wrong. Like results, results matter, right? We're not in the positions we're at without certain results. You can't, you can't earn that scholarship without having certain results. We're not just giving them out to people. Right. But the truth is, and where I think when you talk to the, the more of the higher, like higher levels of, of guys that have the best success, they've figured like they've, unlocked their wrestling ability by taking off the handcuffs. And, and what I mean is like, they're really, they're performing with themselves. They're not performing. Kyle Snyder isn't performing and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it's mm -hmm. like, he's not really, he's not, he's not competing against Sajulayev. He He's competing against himself. And if he executes his game plan, it doesn't matter who it is. That's, that's across from him in blue. It's like, he's going to, he's going to execute and he's going to win. And I think there was a huge emphasis um, on that. And I'm sorry, Kyle, if, if you ever listened to this and, uh, and heard that, and that's not the case. I'm not trying to put words in his mouth, but to me, it's like, I listened to how the guy speaks and it sounds so consistent. Um, like wrestling isn't the most important thing. You know, it's how he approaches wrestling. That's important. His faith is important. And whether that's in God or in, your family and the son, I don't care what it is. Like there, there's just more important things. So um, I think that was, that was something that was super, super important with Ernie is we got to get away. We got to take the handcuffs off and, and you guys put so much pressure on yourselves to win, whether it's because your dad's crazy or your mother's um, not going to feed you for a week or whatever it is. Like <laughs> you, you do this for you. And there's a lot of fun. There's a lot of satisfaction that comes out of knowing that, that uh, you could wrestle well and lose. Like that's a concept that people don't get in this sport. You can wrestle well and lose. And guess what? You can wrestle poorly and win. And that's like, it's honestly like the worst, most like damaging thing to your, your progress. Because mm -hmm. then, then you latch onto these, these, these winning habits um, instead of really like the, the true crux of what's making you win or, or lose. Yeah. And it's relieving to hear that from a coach too, that even if I lose, if I wrestle well and I improve on certain things, it's a, it's a win in that, in that category, in the sense of, you know, Hey, last time I was really struggling with, with this shot defense. And now, you know, I'm improving on that, even though I lost, you know, so as a kid, that's, it's relieving to hear and takes a lot of the pressure off. Yeah. I think the, the reality too, is you're going to fix that, but then, then you get to the next round of the tournament. You know what I mean? And then mm -hmm. now, now you're in the semis instead of the quarters and, and in the semis that it's cranked up another level. So now we like, there's always this growth. And if you're unwilling to grow or you're so set on the fact that you are, you're, you're there, you're getting, you're going to get passed. And again, look at, look at the best guys in, in our country right now. 
I think like use Jordan as uh, Burroughs as an example, that guy has evolved so much over time. Mm-hmm. And, and why? Like, there's a lot of reasons, obviously, but it's like the guy, he doesn't see himself as the best. And right. he's, he's the reigning world champ at 79 kilos, but it's like, there's a lot of world champs. He's got to, he's got to be a two-time world champ. Okay. I won the Olympics. I got to win it twice. I got to beat John. I got it. Like it, it's always reframing that's going on. But I think like, then you look at his wrestling as he, I mean, you can't say he's lost a step, but, but I'm sure he's, he might not be firing in, in exactly the same way he was when he was 23, but he's certainly winning. And, mm-hmm. and why he's not just an athlete. It's like a crazy thing. When I hear people talk about Jordan and they're like, Oh, he's, he's so athletic. Well, listen, he's athletic, but it's a disservice to his wrestling. Um, the guy's one of the best hand fighters in the country for him to hold off Andrew Howe, you know, who was a teammate of mine, who, who was, you know, I think the second best guy in the world at the time, you know, that guy was a hand fighter. Well, how can Jordan beat him if he can't hand fight? Cause Andrew's going to pull him in the mud with him. Like, I think it, it's just like a disservice to the, to the guy. Um, and also but, his like mental toughness, like how many times has he been down late 10 seconds left and he gets it done. Like mental toughness isn't the right word. It's just like being able to perform when you're the absolute most tired you'll ever be with the highest possible stakes. Like he is like the guy with 10 seconds left. Yeah. But I think it's just like, you know, it, it's just, he's never, he's never satisfied. He's, he's always competing with himself. That's mm-hmm. it. And again, I'm putting words in mouths of, of uh, people other than myself. So, so apologies if that's not the case, but um, it's more a matter of respect for those guys that I, that I, try to generalize, um, but probably a little out of bounds. So apologies. <laughs> well, I think you're spot on because, uh, yeah, I mean, look at the evolution JB's had and going back to the edge. I, I just, I've always curious, you know, I'm a big Illinois guy. Is the edge like a club where like seventh and eighth graders will compete for the edge at the Jersey middle school state championships, or is it more of like a kind of like a freestyle thing in the off season? I don't know how it's evolved when, uh, when I was growing up though, you competed still for your, for like your grade club school. team. No, nah, you like your, whatever township you were from or whatever uh, city you were from. I have no idea what, what you'd call it, but um, right. there were a couple like regional schools that seemed like clubs, but yeah, I don't think at the man, at least myself. And I, I've been like an edge kid, you know, an edge guy from day one. Like I never competed for edge really. I always competed for my high school. So how often were you going there in the, the season? Oh, uh, like th- definitely three days a week for sure. I mean, they're practicing two or three days, but, uh, you know, whether it was a, you know, I'm picking up an extra workout or individual or two with, uh, with Ernie and with some other guys. Yeah. It's just interesting to look at when you started, you know, sixth grade isn't that late, but I guess now it especially is, but back then it may not have been. But um, like, was it, were there some growing pains for you kind of getting over that hump or was it something that just came natural to you? Um, I was, I mean, yes, there's growing pains. I right, did, like, right. You know, I'm not an egomaniac. I, like, <laughs> I, I got my butt kicked. I think, so like I'm a twin actually. And, uh, and like my, my twin brother and I both picked it up fast, but my twin brother was like really good. He was really good. And he was double jointed in his shoulders and he, he kind of had it going on. He figured it out. I, I mean, he placed 
you know, we both started in sixth grade. I think the guy placed third in the rec states at, in, you know, in New Jersey is a pretty good state. Like, you know, or maybe it was fifth, but he, he like three months into wrestling. It's pretty impressive. Wow. I think, I think for me, I, I, uh, again, I'm going to sound like a knucklehead, but it's like, I felt like I was a tough kid. You know, I, I always identified with, with grit and with toughness and wanting the challenge. And, um, I really liked the competitive side of it and like the, yeah, just the hyper competitiveness behind wrestling. So I loved that side of it. And I think that's more or less what motivated me. I couldn't, I, there were a lot of guys obviously that were better than me, but I, I never believed once that, that I wrestled anybody that, that I thought they were better than me ever. Really? From, from, from the first time I wrestled, I never thought I should lose a match. I'm, you know, it's funny. I'm talking with my wife the other day. She like my wife and Ernie have a relationship and they've, they've talked. Uh, <laughs> and it, it, it cracks me up literally yesterday is the first day I'm at the park with my kids. And, uh, and she's like, yeah, you know, like Ernie literally said, like, you probably thought you were better than you were, you know, like, and, and it's true, but I'm like, yeah, it's his fault though. He, 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 he created these layers of body armor that you put on to like, of course, how could I lose? How could I lose when you know how hard you train, when you know how well prepared you are, how could you lose? And I, and, and in reality, I'd have it no other way, but, but I'll tell you like, and I'm not, I'm not lying. I didn't think I should lose a match ever from, from the first time I stepped on the mat to not. And I loved, I loved the pressure really. Like I felt the bigger the match, the better I performed, which yeah. was another thing that Ernie, um, another like Ernieism, you know, type of situation was, you know, there's too many practice room wrestlers and the real, the real guys are the ones that not that stink in the wrestling room, but the ones that, that could, on the biggest stage wrestle the best. He would shoot it straight like that. Oh yeah. Any other Ernieisms you can think of that you still use on a daily basis with your guys? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, jokes, more jokes than, than not. Yeah. I do a lot like what Ernie did really well which is where I think Ernie was drawn to me. And he, uh, and again, we've talked about some of these things and we haven't talked about others, but I mean, I'm a pretty sarcastic guy, so it comes off pretty easily for me, but uh, he would drop jokes in practice. He'd be teaching technique and he'd say something and it would seem like silly, but the truth is he was testing. He was like testing the audience to see who was paying attention. And it wasn't, it was like a, it was a dad joke, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, or it was just a little like poking at some, someone or something. And you go, you know, you'd like, you'd like snicker. And he'd like, he always caught, he always caught on who was snickering or, or, you know, then cause he'd look around and he'd see the other kids playing with their shoelaces. This guy's counting the, the hair on his arms that just sprouted up last week. You know, <laughs> the other kids staring at his dad in the window. Cause, cause dad is, is, you know, you gotta pay attention, you know, like who knows. So, but it was like a, it was like a brake check, you know, uh, yeah. when you're driving a brake check to see if the guy, you know, he's going to hit you or what do you do? <laughs> like he like brake check the crowd to see, are you paying attention? Like, are you actually listening? Like, cause, cause again, we haven't talked about it, but it's like what he was saying was so much more important than what he was showing mm -hmm. the psychological aspect of it. It was crucial. And, uh, and man, I remember, like I was early, it was early. It was like seventh grade. I was going there 
and uh, and how they had the old edge. The, the location has changed a couple times, and this isn't their first location, but it's one of their first. Is uh, was in Kenilworth, and they had this one window, uh, like plexiglass or whatever it was, but they couldn't hear what was going on. So it was a closed wall, and then just a window, and then the locker room door, and you access that from the backside. And I just remember my old man. My old man was a he was a baseball player and pretty pretty good, but had no no idea about wrestling. Um, so he doesn't know, which, which was good, you know, again, more of a blank slate for, for Ernie to mold me than him. Mm -hmm. Um, but (laughs) I remember one day we're driving home and he's like, Hey, Zach, he's like, what are you guys talking about so much in there? Like Ernie's notorious. It's a slow practice. I mean, it's a slow practice. Um, and that sounds negative, but it's not, it was like, he talked. He made you understand why it was important, why we were doing it. Because then when you believed in why, it was easier to tap into it instead of this is how you do it. And the, you know, you know a hundred moves. I'd, I'd rather I'd rather recruit a kid that knows three moves and does them well than a than a kid that knows 300 moves and can't execute any of them in a match, right? Mm-hmm. So it was more foundations and principles. Um, and then obviously some higher level stuff that we played with. But I remember my dad, uh, he asked me, he's like, hey, what, what is going on in there? Like all the parents, I keep hearing all the parents and, and they're just, they're frustrated, Zach. He's like, why aren't you guys wrestling more? It's wrestling practice. Why aren't you wrestling more? <laughs> and I said, I said, those parents are idiots. I said, they, they, they can't hear, so they don't know. But, but if their kids aren't saying, like, I, I just got it at an early age. I'm like, what he's saying is so much more important than, than what he's showing, mm-hmm. but you got to listen. If you're not listening, then, then that's it. You know, you'll, you'll never, you'll never be an edge guy if you're not soaking it in. Um, it's insane that even though you had a mastermind on the other side of that glass wall and Ernie, you still had parents on the other side thinking they knew better about pushing the kids hard or not practicing hard enough. Like even the great Ernie Monaco has to deal with, parents questioning practices and stuff like that. Yeah. I could, I could really go off on one about that right now, but uh, I mean, that's, that's everybody. And that's, you know, I, I will say it's kind of New Jersey. Uh, it's every state, I think to an extent and, you know, some higher level players, but everyone knows better. Um, and nowadays where everyone has their own individual coach and a dietitian, I mean, you got high school kids that have their dietitian and their strength coach, and then they have their, their team practice and, and then they have their individual coach and it, it's kind of gotten out of control where there's too many soups, you know, excuse me, too many chefs in the kitchen. Um, yeah. There's, there's not a lot of loyalty either. So, and, and to some extent it's like, it used to be you go to high school and then you had a club. Now it's like your club is your high school and you go to, you go to like six clubs and this is where the best workout is. So I'm going to go there, but I'm going to do individuals with this guy. Um, and the reality is, I don't know, I like, listen, we're succeeding and kids are getting, they might be getting to the next level, but they're so confused. And like, honestly, for me, those are the hardest kids to coach too. Um, I like the loyalty aspect because what, what it brings is, listen, like Ryan, your single leg might be world-class. My single leg m- might like who know there's six different world-class techniques for a single yeah. leg that you're gonna that you're gonna be exposed to in those coaches you're going and, and seeing but the reality is you're better off hearing from one of them than all six 
because how I apply shoulder pressure and how I'm driving off my feet to create that pressure is different than how, you know, Eric Guerrero does it, you know, is different than how Kale does it. And, and both of which might be great, but the reality is I need to, I need to get proficient in one. And, and then if I can do that, I'm going to succeed. I'm going to be able to beat 95 guys, 95% of the guys with one solid one instead of, instead of having a feel for, for all of them. Um, yeah. And it's so counter to how the Russians think about coaching too. They have, it's like coach for life there And like Sergey, him and his swim brother moved to another country to follow their coach. And it's different if you don't have a proven coach, but if you're lucky enough to live near Chicago where there's great coaches um, or New York city, where you can get to the edge, it's like at that point, just stick with one and roll with it all the way through if you can, yeah. you know? And uh, yeah, I say it to this day. I wonder, and I had a, uh, my best friend growing up, he, uh, he wrestled at Penn and uh, he actually coached with me here at, uh, at Columbia my first year, but he and I used to stay in touch quite a bit. Um, his, his, so Zach Shanneman was his name, but he and I talked all throughout college. And we, we just like kind of wondered to an extent, like, what what our course would have been had Ernie been our college, like had it been that way, more yes. of an international foreign system of like, you have a coach for life. That's it. You are his guy. He is your, like, you are his property to an extent. Let's not get crazy. Um, but like, that's like with him, because the trust was so high, we were firing on all cylinders. And then, and then we had to learn a different system. Was that, was that the best thing? And yeah. then again, that's like, for me, having the, like trying to have some foresight, like that's where I had to, like, at least Donnie was a consistent voice, was a consistent, um, like philosophy that I, that I knew I was going to inherit a lot of those same, those same attributes, just in a, you know, a different, different tone, different delivery. Yeah. And you think, you know, about when you got to Wisconsin, you had Donnie there and just by looking at brackets, you know, you could tell you changed weights your junior year. And I had read that you would get really heavy when you were down at 133. But then I also noticed like when you were back in high school, you were sucking a lot to get to 112. So like, what was Ernie's take on some of the weight cutting back then? Yeah, that's a tough one. You know, that, uh, I mean, we did what we had to do. So I went in to high school, I was 112. And then my sophomore year, I cut a lot of weight to go to 112 again. My training partner was Matt Valenti. Um, we did private like individuals together. We both came out of the same club. Um, Matt was a better wrestler than me at that time, for sure. Um, and I wanted, and I wanted to win. And I just felt like, man, we're going to, we're going to run it. I forget who it was at one Oh three. Like I thought edge could have a head, like, a, you know, I have a lot of pride in, in being from the edge and like, you know, and I, and I'm a hyper, hyper competitive. So I wanted to win. So I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to cut where we'll win 12 and, and 19, um, with Valenti going there. But, uh, and then college, was it a pretty big one there? Once you got into like the swing of things at 133, like your junior year, it was big my freshman year. So like I went, oh, wow. I went to, so I moved up in high school to 35, my last two years. And that was, and that was good. But in, I went to college as a 41 pounder. Um, and I got, you know, we had an All-American, a two-time All-American in front of me who was injured. He had a tough neck, like a, or a, a bad neck. And uh, he would go in the lineup and not, especially in the beginning of the season, but like, and they worked him in. And, and that's fair. I mean, he, again, he was a better wrestler than me, no, no problem. But 
we were getting killed. Our backup was, was getting beat up pretty bad. And I mean like techs and, and, and pins and in the big 10, you can't, you can't be giving up bonus points like that. So I was like, Hey, I'll, I'll cut, I'll, I'll go down. I'll do it for the team. And, uh, and to a large extent, like it kind of pigeonholed me there. You know, it was a hard cut. I wasn't a, I wasn't a good weight cutter to begin with. And with my style, like how I wrestled, I wrestled hard. And my biggest, um, attribute was, was my, my strength and my conditioning, both of which were, were pretty significantly compromised when I was cutting weight. So mm-hmm. I would have it some days and I wouldn't have it others. So it was, it was, how did the weight cut go? So then, then you're spending the first period trying to figure out is it, was it a good weight cut or was it not? Um, these are internal thoughts you're having like during a match. No, no. But I like in retrospect, you're like, like you can't, it doesn't matter how tough you are. If you, when, when you have a bad weight cut, you have a bad weight cut and there's no, there's no toughness that's going to get you through it. I mean, you got it in the tank or you don't. So there's some feeling out, like inherently you're going to feel it out. Are my legs underneath me this match? Am I going to be able to go the pace that I need to go in order to put myself in the best position to win? Right. Yeah. And again, it comes back to that identity of like, what does it mean for me to wrestle a perfect match? What does it mean for me to, to compete with myself and like to perform to my optimal ability? I, I have to wrestle hard. I like, I wrestled hard. Um, mm-hmm. I was not the best wrestler, but I wrestled hard. And that was, that was, that was my biggest strength. So at 33, that was in question. Right. And I did it my whole career. I got pigeonholed because I was, I'm short and I was the shortest 41 pounder in the country. Um, but it was actually like my senior year is actually when I moved up. I was, I was 33, my whole, like my first four years and then only my senior year that I go up to 41. And that's where, again, I was, I never had to worry about where my legs underneath me. And that's where my consistency, you know, I proved consistently that I was able to perform at X level with myself and the results followed. Yeah. It's interesting to hear that because I, you know, I never cut as nearly as much weight as you're talking about, but you know, to know that if you don't do it right, like if you get way heavy on Monday, you come in at like 155 and you know, that tapers off perform, no matter what, you're not going to be able to wrestle to your ability. And that's just a lot of people forget about that, that that's how much weight we're talking here. Well, what, what round do you see the most upsets at NCAAs? It's the quarterfinals. Uh, after on, the day on, two cut? After the, after. Or yep, day one cut. Yeah. After the day one cut, you know, how are you going to respond? And a lot of times, like up until I want to say this year, first day was two hour and then it was back to a one hour way in on, on uh, Friday. So on day two of nationals. So like if you had, if you knew you were going against a weight cutter, like you wanted them in the quarterfinals. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, so for, for what you're just saying, yeah, I, I was 133. And again, I'm not proud of this, but like my body had like was in such shutdown mode. Like I would retain everything. Um, and I ate well, I, I mean, I could have done things a lot better, but it's not like I was eating terribly, terribly. I'd have some, you know, a snack here and there, but like I ate and I, and I drank well and I did all these things, but I'd bounce up to 52. Meanwhile, when I, when I went to 41, I never hit 52 ever. Like what? I would so yeah. you'd come in a Monday, sometimes Monday morning at the workout and you're stepping on there and it's North of one fifty. Cool seldomly but yes 40 but i mean but high 40s definitely definitely high 40s every i mean consistently 48 49 50 like if yeah. you're below 45 that's a shock <laughs> coming in on monday yeah i don't know if it happened wow um, but meanwhile I'm, I'm making 41 and my body was regulated 
if I hit 150, I was like, this is weird. Like what's going on. And then as I got closer to a weigh in, my weight actually went up. I, I think that was like, there's a, what is it like a 3% or 4% rule? You know, like I was competing in practice by the time it was live, I was weighing what I would weigh when I actually competed, you know? So I was weighing 145, 146. And that's like realistically where I competed. So, so again, everything was scripted. Everything was known how I was going to perform. Um, yeah, and that was, that was probably the, you know, that's, if I had a regret, that would be it that I didn't, I didn't put my foot down and, and, uh, dig my heels in, I should say, and, and say, man, I'm going, I'm going 41. Well, that was kind of the, the apex of the story is what I wanted to ask is, you know, now if you're talking to guys on your team or just any college wrestler, do you think it was so much that you were too nervous to say something or you said something and then they relented in which case that's a little bit different story, but uh, I'm just curious like what advice you'd give to kids who may be in that kind of situation. Yeah. Well, I'll say this and I laugh. I don't mean to laugh. I laugh because if you know me, I'm never really afraid to say anything, you know, <laughs> like, uh, I speak my mind pretty, pretty freely, but, uh, I'll say this. It's like, listen, I'm a college coach and I, and I recruit and that, that obviously that comes up quite a bit in the recruiting process is what this weight and, and what if I'm not that weight? I think the reality is this, you have to go your optimal weight. For me, my optimal weight was 141, but I didn't, I didn't realize that I would, I convinced myself because, you know, I had some people in, in my camp that convinced me of it, you know, and, and I'm trying to be a soldier that 33 was my optimal weight. But, but, uh, the reality is you go, your you have to go your optimal weight. If you can't make the team, if you can't make the lineup at your optimal weight, now we have to look at other options, right? If, if you want to be in the lineup or you got to mm-hmm. relegate yourself to being the best backup in the country, you know, I, I don't know. For me, that wasn't really, that really wasn't it. My freshman year was, was enough. I wasn't, I wasn't the guy at, at 33. Now I know I could have been the guy at 41 and that's, you know, a, a different story, but, um, but the reality is like, how do we go about it? Or how do I, how do I view it? It's you're going, you got to go your optimal way. Where are you going to, like, when you go to bed, what are you dreaming about? You're winning the NCAAs at this weight when you're in class and you're, you know, doodling, you know, I can't tell you the times I wrote, the, you know, 2008, big 10 champ, 2009, big 10 champ, whatever, what NCAA champ, you're like, what weight is that at? You know? So that's, that's, that's your weight class. But yeah. if you have, listen, if you are, uh, you know, if you're 149, if your optimal weight is 149 and you're at Cornell, you, and your name's not Yanni Diakamahalis, <laughs> you're not a 49 pounder, right? you know, or you're not a uh, Cornell wrestler <laughs> or you're not a, well, well, yeah, I guess now it's, you know, it's a little touchy because of the transfer portal. I have no one that's yeah. everyone's situation now, but, yeah. uh, but so that, I think that's it. So you either got to decide, are you going up or are you going down? And then, and then that's it. Like you are, you are, then you are a, a 33 pounder or you are a 49 pounder. You're no longer that 41 pounder until the season is over. Like you got to commit. Yeah. Because especially when recruiting, you think back to your time at the big 10, where there's scholarship money on the lines and it's, it's big stakes, you know, they're recruiting based on where they think you're going to be. So there's a, a level of commitment there. I would imagine that goes into some of the planning. So before you got into the thick of the season at Wisconsin and when you're almost entirely focused on the weight cut, like when you're getting in there your first year, was the training that Donnie and obviously Coach Davis, but I imagine Donnie was doing a lot of it. Was the training early on a shock, or were you pretty ready for the training and like the physicality of Division One wrestling? No, I was ready for it. 
psychologically. I mean, physically there's a, there's an acclimation period, right? Like you're going to, you're going to be sore in, in ways and in places that you didn't know you were capable of being sore. But again, I think Ernie always, he made it really clear. Like you're not going to be the best guy in the room. If you are, that's it. You chose the wrong school. Um, you know, like you can't be the best guy in the room by your sophomore year. That's a bad, that's a bad problem to have. Um, and I won't say who, but that, that was an issue for, for one of the, the, you know, foreign edge guy that came before me. Um, so that was something we were really worried about, not worried about, but something I was really cognizant of in the recruiting process. But, um, I knew it was going to be hard. I didn't expect to be the best guy. I also had a, like, I wasn't, I wasn't, I just wasn't the best guy. I was the toughest guy, but I wasn't the best guy. I had a long ways to go. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll tell you, you know, every, nothing's a quick story because I take after Ernie, but it's like my first college practice was, was, uh, you know, we went in and, and it was Barry that ran it, but, uh, we went in, we did a little bit of drilling and this was like big 10 back in the day. Anyway, it's just like, you go in, you kind of warm up and you wrestle live, but first practice and all the, the incoming freshmen, you know, we had the number one recruiting class in the country. So it was a good class, but, uh, 60 minute go on the clock. Right. And for me, I, I always believed that like I should grab the best guy as often as possible and train and getting my, getting my butt kicked is like, I, I personally, cause I'm so competitive, I will crack the case. I will figure it out. The more reps I get on that guy, the more I will figure out a way to beat him. But, uh, I grabbed a guy, Tony black, who was a stud and, and, uh, you know, NCAA all American. He was helping out, uh, at the time, you know, I knew he was good, but I guess I didn't really know how he wrestled. So he was really, really good on top. Ooh. and uh oh, no. i'm holding my own i mean it's a 60 minute go i'm holding my own. it's like two minutes in two and a half minutes in and then i give up a takedown and then 57 minutes 57 and a half minutes i got ridden and i don't mean ridden i got tortured um and i you know i again it wasn't like a hard psychological mean, it was hard psychologically to an extent but not ever like close to breaking it was just like i got a lot to work on um but to answer the question, it's like, nah, I, I felt comfortable with, with what I was getting myself into in the Big Ten. And that's, it's honestly where it wasn't really a decision. I knew I had to go somewhere in the Big Ten. Um, yeah. And where you're going to get, like Tony, I, I would ask Tony to wrestle all the time, you know, because of, because of that. And that's something that Tony respected. I think about me, if I were to look back on it in our conversation since college, it's, he liked the fact that he had a kid that, that you know, had no no right being on the mat with them, but was willing to do it all the time to to get better. And the fact that you didn't break or start throwing elbows after like minute thirty of being a road is uh, like a yeah. freaking out kind of thing is a pretty is a testament, you know. Yeah, I I mean I wrestled hard. I don't think I was cheap though. You know, I'd rather just stand up and fight than uh. You know, I'd rather just say, hey, let's okay, you're gonna beat me in wrestling. Let's, I'm, but I'm gonna I'm gonna fight. <laughs> so let's fight. <laughs> you know, I don't want to. I I never wanted to be a. Uh, I never wanted to be cheap, man. I don't like that. I never liked that. And and for me, I learned because I I was uh, I'd say I had some anger issues. That's something where like Ernie helped me so much was like trying like like re reframe it and like like it became like okay, crack my neck. All right, you want to get tough? I can get tough. Like that, you want to fight? I can fight. And like that's where Donnie took over. And I'm I'm thinking about a match, particularly you know, I had NCAAs my senior year. It's funny, but I'll, I'll never forget. It was like, 
I had a guy that, uh, that I had previously wrestled and had a, you know, a good performance against, and then I'm wrestling him and he, he had a bone to pick and he, he came across the line. He headbutted me. I thought I broke my nose off the, like he headbutted me and high crashed me and, and tomahawked me down. And I was like, I hadn't been shook really like ever. And I, I woke up and I looked at Donnie and Don, like Donnie, I was like, what the heck was that? And he just looked at me and he's like, he wants to make it a fight. Let's make it a, you know, a fight. And it like snapped me back. I'm like, Oh, well, I'm good at that. And then, you know, <laughs> then, then everything was back on track, but it's, uh, it's funny, but I never want it to be dirty. Never want it to be cheap. And what do you, what do you think back on, you know, working with Donnie for those years, did you pick up from him that you didn't already have from Ernie? Was there anything that stood out? Was there a special thing about that relationship? Yeah, I'll say the special thing about that relationship was the amount he invested in me. I think he, pre- I, I'm a, I'm a fierce loyalist. Like, and I mean, like people talk about loyalty. I have a, I have a really, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. I have a real loyalty to people and people that have done right by me. And, and, uh, you know, to my detriment, it, it hurts when people do wrong by me. You know, I'm, I'm always working on that, on, on recovering. And I think for my childhood, a lot of these things served me well. And as I, as I've matured, as I've gotten into different, um, side of wrestling, right. And coaching, like we have to, we have to evolve, we have to grow. But, uh, but I guess what I'd say is like, I was, I was really, really loyal to Donnie and, uh, and he was really loyal to me. And I think that's what it was like, and it evolved over time, but eventually it just became, you do this. Okay. Like that's it. I'm just going to do it. But, uh, where Donnie really helped me was just overall confidence. Like I've always believed in myself. I always knew, but Donnie had like, he, he empowered me to, to, uh, to have that like it factor. I mean, he's one of the hardest dudes. He's just a hard dude. That's it. And that's like one of the biggest compliments I can, I can give someone Mm -hmm. to the same extent that like being a wimp would be one of the worst insults I can give you. Donnie's a hard dude. Um, but he is a, he is a, you know, has empathy. He's got, he's got tremendous relation skills and, um, he let me in to him and his family and his, and his kids. And, you know, it was, uh, it was good. So I think, I think more than anything, it was just like having a guy that I knew, he, he maybe never even told me, but he believed in me. You know, he never told me you're going to be a national champ, but, but, uh, but I knew he, I knew that he knew I was going to be a national champ without a doubt. Um, yeah. And that's like, that's for me more than anything technical you can ever show me is just belief. Belief in me was going to be the, the key to my, my heart and my success. And I, looked at your career and obviously all American three ten qualifier, but maybe one of the biggest moments you, you said you had was when you won the Midlands in 08. Why was that? Well, I think there's a, there's a difference between knowing you can be the guy and being the guy. Right. And, uh, especially like you have a chip on, I had a chip on my shoulder and I think when you're climbing the mountain, you have to have that chip on, on your shoulder. Right. But I went in there and, again it's so it's it's uh it's silly it's funny because it came up yesterday when i was talking to to ernie because ernie has has used this tactic with other with other guys um that he's coached and coaching and one that that uh matters a lot to him but uh it was the first tournament i I didn't look at a bracket 
and I just like committed. I, I just said, I'm done. I'm done with this. I had so many issues getting back to Wisconsin um, from, from winter break or whatever, you know, you get a week off or whatever it was, but we had some bad weather out East and I could, I couldn't get back to Madison on the 26th. And then it was the 27th and then my flight got canceled then. And then it's the 28th and I got it. I got a report, you know, and I got it. So I ended up just getting a flight to Chicago and I meet the team. So my mind was almost distracted elsewhere. Like, am I even going to be able to get there? How am I going to get my weight down? What am I doing for practice? All this stuff. Um, and it kind of in that, in that madness, I forgot about wrestling and I, you know, I, I warmed up, I felt good, but I was like, I'm done with this. Screw this. I'm done. I don't care who I'm wrestling. It doesn't matter. And like, like really, like truly genuinely did not matter who I was wrestling. Everyone says that, right. But like, I gave up, I said, I'm done. So I didn't look at the bracket and I went there and I just said, okay, who, who's, who's there, you know, who's in front of me. And I was just like, it was the first time in my career that I was really, truly present. It didn't matter. And, and I went out and I rolled, I rolled through a, you know, a pretty good bracket, had some, had some decent guys and beat the kid ranked number one in the country. And then, um, I think number one and number two. And, but it, again, it just became about me. It was always about me. Um, but that unlocked it. And that, that to me is why that was not because I won winning was a byproduct of, of my approach to the competition. And, uh, and I think that was like the, that was why that was the best thing. Cause it finally came together and it was coming together at the right time. Now my body, like I'm at the right weight class, I'm feeling good. Um, and now like psychologically, I'm, I'm, I'm connecting all, all the, uh, the pieces. And Monaco still uses that. Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, he, so he's still coaching. Oh yeah. 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 Wow. He's still, he's still in it. And, uh, but yeah, his, one of his, his good guys was a Jersey state champ this weekend. And someone I'm, I'm close with, I coach his, his, uh, his brother actually on my college team now, and this kid's going to, he's going to have a great career, but I actually was there at the tournament and had like had a little bit of a break. And I'm, I'm like, ah, who, who are you wrestling next? He's like, I don't know. And Ernie's right there. And he's like, yeah, Midlands. I'm like, what? He's like, ever since I told him the Midlands story. He doesn't look at the bracket. He doesn't care. <laughs> I got to get Monaco on this podcast, man. Gotta, this guy. Is, you, you better carve out a couple hours though. I'm going to come out to Jersey for that one. I'm just going to come out and spend a couple days. Yeah. He's the one man. He's, he's the one. And I know you had, um, forgetting his name, but, uh, with Harvey twisters and okay, yeah, uh, coach Quint. Yeah. 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 Sorry. And I, and I coach a, I coach a twister now. Shame on me for forgetting his name, but, uh, no problem, man. But, Every state uh, has theirs, he, you know. He's the guy. He's Ernie would be the guy to to get on and, and pick his brain and just let you know. Kind of, you need two questions and he'll run for two hours. <laughs> well, I love that. You know, I'm from the Midwest, and you know, East Coasters they have a way about them in terms of just a. It just seems to me. Every guy I know from the edge or from Jersey, just naturally a self confident person, and carries themselves, you know, kind of in a gregarious, outgoing way, and they always you know, just great communicate. I don't know always, but great communicators. And he seems like he's like just the godfather of that. Just kind of like, uh, just a puppet master and each person's an individual and he knows how to speak to everybody. Yeah. I, I'd agree with that. You know? Yeah. Listen, for every guy there is, there's 20 that weren't though. You know what I mean? Sure. So it's like, I wouldn't say he has 
favorites, but he's got guys that he connects with. Like he's a human. So humans connect with humans. They like certain humans more than other humans. And I think it's, it's all relational and he's like the king of relations Mm -hmm. and he can sense loyalty. He can sense competitiveness. He can sense like all the, like he's got this formula, right. And it's all these ingredients that go into it. And he, he sees six of the 10 needed in you and he can put two of the other ones in and then we got to figure out the last, the last two or whatever it is. But like, if it's just one or two ingredients, he's not like, not that he's not going to mess around, but there's, there's more juice to squeeze in someone else potentially. So, uh, but he, he's just, I'll say this. I think a lot of like, I have an identity as a coach, right. What I'm looking for in the recruiting process. And I have, I have, like, I hold myself accountable to, to stay true to that, you know? And I can't tell you the amount of guys, the amount of good recruits that I've walked out on this year. Like I'm telling you, I can, I would never, but it's like, right. I got, I've got two recruits on, on, uh, from this year's class that I'm just like, Hey, sorry, man, we're going to, we're going to back out. You know, I wish you the best of luck, but and it doesn't mean they're not going to be successful. I mean, these kids have, have potential to be very successful, but I'm just like, listen, it's, it's not going to be the right fit here. Um, and it could be the right fit at Penn state or Cornell or, or, uh, Maryland. I don't care where it is like for some coach, but like, to me, that's the, that's the most important thing in the recruiting process in the, in the coaching uh, athlete relationship is, is the fit. And to me, I'm, I'm no different than Ernie in that sense. And I, and I, you know, I'm proud of that, that I, I know what's going to work for me and I know what's not going to work for me. Yeah. And again, I'm not saying you're not going to be successful, but this is not the program you're going to have the most success in. And I'd rather have the third place finisher at, 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 uh, Fargo that that we're speaking the same language mm-hmm. as opposed to um you know the guy that won it and I'm gonna I'm trying to fit a square peg in a round hole and and you look at like Donnie uh at Wisconsin and and again I use Andrew Howe as an example because I love Andrew and and he's a good epitome of what that program kind of looked like but Andrew Andrew was a top recruit but he wasn't the top recruit there were a couple of guys at his weight that were ranked ahead of him but the guy couldn't have chose a better program than, you know, or a better coach than, than mm-hmm. Donnie stylistically for him. Yep. And it's like, everyone saw it and it's like, ah, man, they even start to look, look like each other. Over they now. do look you know like, I mean? yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that's it. And now would Andrew, he, he's strong enough mentally and everything. He probably would have had some, uh, a lot of success somewhere else, but I don't know. I, I, I question if he, if he would have been as successful had he not had, uh, had he not gone with Donnie because of the fit. Right. So outside of anything character-wise, right, you find out a recruit's just a liar, he has bad grades, whatever. Barring any of that stuff, you have a solid recruit, he's in your pipeline. What is something a recruit would do or say that would say that's not a good fit for Columbia in case someone's listening? Right? Or, or you could take another way. What are you looking for in a guy that to you is a, that's a slam dunk? We want him here. <laughs> yeah, that's a t- that's a, it's tough to answer fully honest in there. Um, and that's just full disclosure. I mean, listen, we we're in the Ivy league and I think, I think the reality is like Columbia, we've come a long way and I really feel I've, I'm really proud of the ground we've covered in my six years here, but I think the biggest transformation we've made and a lot of things that come up like for me in the recruiting process, 
um, and I say it intentionally in front of in front of parents to to elicit a response and to and to hear what they say. We we don't want student athletes. I want athlete students, right? And I think there's this big misconception uh, in the Ivy League that you know, yeah, like it's it's all academics, and maybe our administrations think that way. Maybe the universities think that way. But I'm a I'm a Division One head wrestling coach, and wrestling really matters to me. So and you say the, you want the athlete students. 100%. Love it. I don't want student athletes. I don't, basically, <laughs> I don't, I don't want kids that are using wrestling to get into school. Right. Like that's it. I don't, I don't need a kid that wants to go to an Ivy league school and that's their dream. There's too many, there's too many good kids that, that that's not the case. And they'll, they will, they will use wrestling to get the best education possible, but they're not using wrestling to get an Ivy league degree. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it, it's, it's kind of, well, it's not their fault, right? But they don't know how hard it is to be an All-American. They don't know how hard it is to be a national champ. Shoot, now it's never been harder to qualify for the national tournament. When I was coming out, it was like, you know, you say I'm a three-time national qualifier. I wasn't a starter my freshman year. Otherwise, I would, yeah, it, like, it was nothing. You know, and that's, that's like, I hope you or people listening don't misinterpret that. It's just like, it wasn't, it was never my goal to be a national qualifier. Right, so, right. but now I look at it and I'm like, man, being a national, like, I'm not saying it's, it's what you're shooting for all the time, but like, it's hard. It's hard to be a national qualifier. So I guess the point I'm making is these parents, these kids, these high school kids, and I mean, even the best high school kids, they have no idea how hard it is to, to be an all American. Mm-hmm. So when you're getting kids that aren't passionate about wrestling, they're passionate about, you know, school and then using wrestling when they get punched in the mouth, their, their first, their first year, their first practice, they're, they're hitting the GW bridge. They're, they're, they're walking home. They're driving. They're not coming back. And they're already into school. So they don't care. And they don't care. Right. Right. So like, we don't get walk-ons here. You know, you'd, you'd have to have a 15, 15, 20 or, you know, a 34 on your ACT to, to get into school here. So it's like, we're not getting walk-ons. So when we lose a guy, we don't, we can't fill him in with another walk on an, an in-state guy. So to me, like retention is key. And I'd rather have like, as far as the culture, which is like the thing I'm single-handedly like most proud of with where we're at as a program right now, it's like the culture has to be strong and it has to be a wrestling culture and that, and we have a wrestling culture. Now we're, we're working on, you know, executing and getting that first guy back on the stand and being in the finals and, and we're, we're close, but, uh, mm-hmm. But I guess like that's as far as I'll go with it to, to answer your question. I yep. will, I will point blank say we want, we want athlete students. We don't want student athletes. Um, and, and I guess I'll, I qualify it by like in doing that, we've gotten more highly competitive kids, like just overall competitors. And like our academics have never been in a better place. We have more academic all Americans than we've ever had in, in program history because these kids just, everything matters to them. Um, so, so I kinda, much of that athletics, I mean, the academic stuff, like you're talking to one of the worst test takers ever, but a work ethic through the roof. So like, don't you think a lot of those just super competitive kids, they obviously have the grades to get into Columbia, but you know, maybe even if they weren't like the best students, that competitiveness, once they get in the classroom, that takes them as far as they need to go. Ryan, with, without a doubt, without a doubt. And I, you know, it sounds bad as a, as an employee of an Ivy league school, but the reality is the hardest, the hardest part really is getting in. And that's where like, listen, our graduation rate is high. Maybe it's 98%, but 
Um, like these Ivy League schools wouldn't be the Ivies without that, right? But student athletes graduate at a higher clip than like they graduated 99%, right? Mm -hmm. It's an anomaly when kids come and don't graduate. So how, how is that possible? If we, you know, obviously with athletics to be competitive at any sport, we have different admission standards, um, you know, and they're, they're in line with, with what they need to be. And, and again, we don't, we don't create them. So it comes from admission. So it's fair, but it's, it's certainly not a 1500 on your SAT or, or a 34 on your ACT. So it's like, how are those kids that like, if that's the standard that you hold everyone else to, why are these kids that, that test way below that able to survive? Well, it's because they know what adversity looks like. You know, the problem with getting kids that have 36 on their ACTs all the time, they've never failed. They've never, they've never had a B, you know, they're 4.1 on a 4.0 scale. They're number one in their class. They, and it's come easy. Like the reality is like high school is kind of easy, mm -hmm. um, depending on where, where you go to school. So I, again, I've gotten long winded on this, but Ryan, That's you would have been fine. You would have been fine at Columbia. Everyone, the reality is like, if you're willing to do the work, you, you'll be fine. I don't, I, you know, we've got too many resources, like the resources we have here in our athletic department and every, in all, all of these schools, you know, like you have to try to, to not graduate from college. And I don't, I don't care. That's every single school right now. At, at the, the worst wrestling school in the country right now, whatever that is, you have to try to fail out of that school or the worst academic school that has wrestling. Like you have to try because yeah. you have an academic advisor you've got free tutors, like all this stuff isn't groundbreaking, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's really how hard you're willing to work. And if you are willing to work, you will, you will do it. You mentioned the culture and there's a, a lot, I'm not going to be able to talk to you about today because we're winding down, but you mentioned the culture you took over Columbia July, 2016, and you've built it up, you know, just an incredible run this February. You had, I think six or seven guys ranked in the top 25, which was the most in program history. You're taking on Michigan. You're taking on Oklahoma State. You're an animal out there. But your culture, I heard one of the things you're big on is still competing with the guys and wrestling with the guys. What are some other components of your culture? Like if you had to go teach a business on how to create culture. Yeah, I think I, I guess principle one, honesty, is it commitment? It's genuine. Like I'm just really genuine, I think. And, and that, that can be good and bad. Right. But I, I will say that my guys, they might not always like what I'm saying, but they always know what I'm feeling. Um, and again, that could be a weakness as well, but like, it's never like, I am so committed to them and to their, their development. And again, it, like, I think they know what's off the mat too. Like I, I, I really try to give myself, I was an athlete. I know how selfish you have to be. I was selfish as an athlete, but I truly believe as a coach, like our, we are, we are here to be selfless and uh, you know, I, I give a lot and I think like it's hard to hide effort. Right. And that's where like coach always has, you're always going to have kids that perform well, but I have a lot of favorites on this team that don't even start. And, and I try to recognize them as much as possible for their effort, because we can't, we can't do squat without having those guys. And uh, you brought up our banquet in the beginning and like the whole, the whole centerpiece around like what I tried to say in, in our, you know, just our summary of kind of like where we're at and, and like kind of the, the direction of the program 
we're there for everyone else, like, or we're there because of everyone else. And it's because of those guys that, uh, you know, Matt Casimir is able to, to go on and, and win in the IWA title. And Josh Ovenson is doing, you know, qualifying for the world team trials. And, and, you know, we have a, like, that's the stuff. And we, we got to recognize hard work. Like I will always be a guy that respects hard, hard work and doing, doing the job the way it's supposed to be done. And there's a lot of ways to do the right thing. And there's a lot of ways to do the wrong thing. But at the end of the day, there's, there's, there's really only two groups. There's right and wrong. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's it, but, but you got to live it too, you know, and I, I hold myself pretty accountable and I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not unwilling to say when I'm wrong, you know, I might fight it, but when I mess up, I, I come to these guys and I tell them like I, I messed up and, and I, I, I will do it differently in the future. But I think it's just, it's about relationships, man. And that, and that's it. And I'm a, I'm a real I'm a real guy. I'm a real, you know, not dude. I'm not a, you know, playing to the generation, but it's like, I'm just a, I'm a real guy. I really care about them. And Mm -hmm. that like, when we're talking about recruiting, it's like, that's the stuff. If that resonates with the families, I know it's going to be a good fit. So like the kids we have in this program, like that has resonated with them. Like the fact that like, I'm going to get, I'm going to get your back, but we're going to have hard days. We're going to have good days. But, uh, the, but the reality is like, I, I really, really invested. And I, and all I ask is that you're invested in return and win, lose, or draw, we'll be fine. We, you know, I, I'm good enough at recruiting to, to get guys that will be the guy, but, uh, but I need you all in. And if, mm-hmm. and if we have that, then, then we're going to be just fine. And I think there's enough case study of that on the team. And the longer I've been here, the longer they've realized like, man, he, he, he's hard in practice and he, and I he holds me accountable, but but he is saying the truth. Like when he, when I lose, if I do, if I compete hard, he's going to be happy, you know? Yeah. So there's enough proof in the pudding where I think I have, I have built up credibility where, where it carries me through. I love it. And I, thanks for sharing that because that's obviously a key cornerstone of the success you guys have had there is, is the philosophy and the culture. And it's just cool to see that Columbia, you know, when I first started researching this morning, I thought you guys were like, um, I think it's St. John's or St. Joe's. It's like downtown in the loop, uh, uh, the loop Chicago, but like downtown New York, but you guys are actually, you have grass on the campus and it's kind of away from, from the, uh, the financial district. Is that right? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's uptown. I think that's the biggest battle we're always fighting. People be, everyone thinks they know New York city, right? Because they've heard of New York city and just like, it's, uh, it's like a prejudice in a sense, you know, it's like used against us in the recruiting process. People have no idea the same way. I don't know what it's like to grow up in the, in a, in a cornfield in, in Iowa. You know what I mean? Right. And, and we want to try and eliminate that judgment. And, and our biggest thing is come out and see campus. I get it. I get it. If nothing else, you and your folks should come out to New York city, see what it's like. But the reality is we're not like NYU who's down in the, in like, you can't distinguish between buildings and academic uh, right. you know, buildings for us. We, I mean, we have a campus. We're we're certainly an urban school, but we're like we're one of the smallest, most compact schools in the country. It's it, like we have six thousand undergrads, and our undergraduate campus is is six blocks long, which like it's a quarter mile by by you know by two tenths of a mile. So it's just it's pretty deceptive, and that's where whether we get kids or not, it's. Uh, it's funny because they always leave 
with a better taste in their mouth. They always leave satisfied with what they got. And yeah, you know, maybe not for me, but it's definitely better. It's better than I thought it was going to be. So it's kind of like an ace in our, in our sleeve. And some kids, some kids fall in love with it, man. And that's it. Man, the other ace is that you go to Columbia, you're getting paid when you graduate. I mean, that's got to be another thing is, I mean, anyone in the business world or anyone who's, you know, now trying to get a job just can understand that there's certain schools you go to, whether it's Wharton or whatever, you know, there's a couple in there that you're in a different group of alumni when you graduate. And that's everything for getting a job. It's the relationships in that alumni group. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a no brainer. That, that is the niche, right? Is, uh, and you, you mentioned a couple other schools and it, and it's true. And that's where I'm, you know, that's where we have something to sell. And that's where I'm grateful to be a part of a program where there is something to sell. I think, you know, when I was looking at jobs and places that could, I could call home, um, you know, the Ivy League has a lot, has a lot to sell. We, we have something other than wrestling to, to, uh, to pitch. So like the big 10, big 10 is, is its own pitch. You know, they're, it's the best wrestling conference in the country. And I, I don't have any shame in saying that as a, as a, uh, as a coach in another conference. Right. But we can call and say that we have this academic side that will set them up for the rest of their lives. And, and that's kind of the coolest thing, man. Cause, cause there are some kids that, that we recruit where, um, this, this could like significantly change the trajectory of their, their lives. Mm-hmm. And that, that's like, that's like leaving an impact, you know, and to be a part of that. Cause the, the truth is we're going to, we're going to coach a lot more guys. And I don't care if it's, if it's Tom brands, if it's kale Sanderson, it's like, you're going to coach more guys that aren't national champs and aren't all Americans than you are that, that get it done. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's gotta be some experience. There's gotta be some other things, um, development. And, and I know those coaches do that as well. Um, but like that, it, it certainly matters to me too. Like, so it's an experience here. Um, and then they leave with, with having hopefully changed the, the trajectory of their lives. I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that. Absolutely. And I just coach, you've been so gracious with your time. We usually don't go this long, but having so much fun chatting it up with you. I want to ask you about one last thing, then we'll wind it down. And you talk about points in life, changing career trajectories. I got to imagine that when you were at Hofstra, you had been there four or five years, you become the interim head coach. And I'm asking because I literally don't know the answer to this. Did you think you had a legit shot at getting that job or you knew that they were not going to look at you as the head coach? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought, I mean, I definitely think that I was in a position to get that job. Um, Talk us through that and how you handled that. Well, what I'll say is this. I, I knew, I knew that Hofstra wouldn't have, like Hofstra wasn't my end goal. It wasn't like being the head coach at Hofstra, um, although maybe convenient, like wasn't the answer to me at the time. And, uh, and I've said it all along and, and even, even coming to Columbia, I didn't apply for the Columbia job. They sought me out, but it made a lot of sense. It made a lot more sense than, than Hofstra did, but I, uh, I love coaching, you know, and I know I'm a leader. I, and and what does that mean? I, you know, I elicit followership, but, uh, the reality is I never needed to be a head coach. And, and I enjoy being a head coach, but the reality is, is really like, I, I wanted to learn more and I felt like, you know, whether it was administratively, 
or I'll just leave it at that. I don't, I don't want to yeah. get too in the weeds on the, on the actual specifics, but the reality sure. is it was time for, you know, it was a good run and we did some really good things and I had some great guys and man, I had guys, are some, uh, I had a Hofstra guy who's getting married this weekend and I'm driving back from last chance qualifier. And I had three guys, two of which were all American or uh, <laughs> just like, wow, they're, they're FaceTiming me. Can't yeah. believe it. Like they're, you know, like that stuff. It was, a, that was a really awesome time in my coaching career but the reality was i saw myself going um onto the different things and getting back to to the big 10 was something that was important to me and i feel like i learned a lot there and um as i mentioned this job presented itself to me and uh for my my wife you know and, and for us to kind of get our own start and then we started our family it, it made a lot of sense growing up 25 minutes away from from where i live and you know one of six so most of my family is here still so it made a lot of sense but uh it's cool that joe dubuque left and you're he's an edge guy you go to hofstra joe dubuque goes to indiana then you end up in purdue also in indiana it's like a lot of edge connections throughout this whole thing yeah let's set that record straight real quick if if joe does listen to this i will donkey kong joe i mean (laughs) donkey kong joe and maybe maybe we do a little event Right. I'm calling you out, Joe. I'll take care of you real quick. I saw that last match you had with Flieger. I'm taking you down. Let's um, do it. Let's this could be it. on stalemate street league. That's right. <laughs> no, Joe, uh, it is funny what you say. And, and it's, it's, I call it the universe. My wife and I like, it's just how the universe works out. And Joe's in a great place. Joe is about as close to the guy that I have in this sport. Um, I love him. I love Jamie, his wife and his kids. Like, we're involved. I'll be, he's, I'll be at his, he's turning 40 here next week. I'll be in his, uh, at his birthday party. So he's, he's my man, but I did, it was cool to, to take that job after he went back to Indiana. And then, you know, we found, we followed similar trajectories for sure. Um, yeah, I, I forgot that he's at, obviously Princeton now. So you're both in the Ivy going at it, you know, probably not even too far away from each other. No, a couple nope. hours, yeah. not even. Yeah. We're, we're an hour. I mean, we're 50 minutes away from each other. So Love it, man. It's just crazy to see how stars align like that. Oh, yeah. Well, Coach, thank you so much for your time. Anything else you wanted to hit on that we haven't got to yet, my man? No, Ryan. Hey, listen, the show's great. You've done a doing a good service for wrestling, man. I think this is cool and hearing people's stories. So appreciate all you do and, and what you're bringing. So thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, man. It's been an honor to have you on, and we'll talk to you soon, Coach. Wrestling fans, this episode is brought to you by the Frog Ninja Wrestling Camp taking place Tuesday, June 21st through Thursday, June 23rd at Oxford High School in Oxford, PA. The clinicians, stellar list of clinicians, will be Brian Pearsall, who was a four-year starter at Penn State, is now the associate head coach at the University of Pennsylvania. They're also having Mark Hall, maybe you've heard of him, NCAA champ, six-time Minnesota high school state champ. He's going to be one of the clinicians. Then you also have Dave McFadden rounding out the group. So an awesome camp taking place this June 21st through June 23rd in Oxford, PA. Go to frogninjawrestlingclub.com to sign up. That's frogninjawrestlingclub.com to sign up.